So we, I, I, I was just this morning. I think the word prayer has been said many, many times. It's it's like it's something important that we should be doing, which of course it is. And as we're running up to our prayer week uh, in in February, uh, we've been looking at the subject of prayer, but specifically that that the, the supernatural intervention. The belief and the faith to pray for that supernatural intervention when we pray. And we're going to be looking today at a particular king uh, recorded in the Bible who prayed and God intervened ridiculously supernaturally. If there was a scale of the supernatural, we're talking 11 out of 10. I won't spoil it, but it's Kings 18.19. Don't spoil it for yourself. Let's, you know, you don't read ahead. But it's, we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Kings, chapter 18 and chapter 19. And it's King Hezekiah. And we're going to specifically look at when Hezekiah prayed, how he prayed, and then how God responded. So Hezekiah was uh, 25 when he became king of what was called, uh, it was Ju- uh, Judah. So at that time, the uh, country of Israel had, had been really split into two, with Judah and Samaria. Hezekiah was king of Judah, where the holy city of Jerusalem still resided. And Hezekiah, straight away, even being relatively young, took bold action. He tore down uh, religious sites, what was called high places, did away with unnecessary rituals that had kind of creeped in to the worship of the living God, that had been infiltrated by pagan ritualism and idolatry. And, And Hezekiah straight away saw that to be a real problem for the country and tore these places down. We read in chapter 18 verses 5 and 8, that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him, and he was successful in whatever he undertook. And that was on the, on the battlefield as well. So at this time, there was the Assyrian Empire led by a number of kings over many years that were invading and conquering the surrounding countries and land. And they took Samaria. And for 14 years, Hezekiah and the people of Judah and the military of Judah fought against the Assyrian Empire. And God was with him. But there came a time, and it says in Chronicles, that even after all Hezekiah had faithfully done, after all he had done, the Assyrian Empire, led by a guy called uh, uh, Sennacherib. You know, what? you have a word that you think when you're about to preach, that word's going to stumble me. You have it in your mind, you have it in your mind. And first time I say it, I muck it up. Sennacherib. I'm going to be saying it again. So Sennacherib. I might just point at people just to say it, and maybe just to help me. Sennacherib. He was the Assyrian 
uh, empire and king at the time. And he took all of the, the fortified cities and towns in Judah and encamped his army and, and, and his messengers around Jerusalem. And we're going to take a look first at Hezekiah's response. So we read in, Hez- in uh, chapter 18, verse 14, that initially when the Assyrian Empire, Sennacherib, was around Jerusalem, Hezekiah did this. He said to the king of Assyria, I have done wrong, withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. And the king of Assyria exacted 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. In today's money, it's millions, millions of of pounds worth of gold and silver. Hezekiah even went, in terms of his bargaining position, we read that Hezekiah, I don't know if he literally did it or if he got people to do it, but they were scraping the gold off the doors and the door frames in the palace, trying to get and gather as much gold as they could to appease Sennacherib. But just remember that Hezekiah's first response was to bargain. This great king of Judah, Jerusalem surrounded, all of the cities surrounding them taken by the empire. Hezekiah's first response is to bargain with Sennacherib. Sennacherib has also sent some messengers with a message because he doesn't actually, he takes the money, he takes the gold, he takes the silver, but he doesn't want to be paid off. Yeah, he'll get as much gold as he can wrangle from Hezekiah, but no, he wants submission, he wants obedience, he wants to be the conqueror of Judah and of Jerusalem. So he sends some messengers army and, 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 and many of his officials are still there. And, he, and Sennacherib sends officials, and we can read in verses 19 and 22 of chapter 18. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me. Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's heart and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? There's a couple of pretty good questions there. Who are you basing your confidence on? And whom are you depending upon? They knew that Pharaoh, as he had shown in the past and in other experiences with other countries, Pharaoh was going to let him down in Egypt. Hezekiah knew that his own military, his own battle strategy wasn't enough. The people knew and Hezekiah knew that these rituals and idolatry were just empty assurances. And like many of us here today, they knew in their heart and in their mind that the answer to that question of whom are you depending upon was the one and only God of Israel. 
God was their rock. God was their foundation. But for many of us, perhaps, and for me, if I'm frank and honest, that can sometimes become a bit blasé and a bit of a cliché even. I know in my head, and it's not just a head knowledge, I know in my heart that truth of faith that God is my foundation, God is my rock. I know that, I, that I'm not enough, that I shouldn't just depend on me, I shouldn't just depend on my family or my friends. I don't depend on world leaders or scientists or doctors. I don't solely depend on church leaders or, or Nathan as our pastor. That we shouldn't as Christians solely put our dependence on humans and people. That it, our God is our foundation. I hold that truth as an as, as, as a integral part of my faith. But if it stays there, if it just stays an integral truth, if it just stays inside me, then we're not living it. We're not letting it naturally flow out of us. Because if I truly and wholeheartedly believe that God is my rock, God is my foundation on whom I depend on, that should every single day alter and dictate how I respond to my life and to situations in my life. And we're talking about, in our day-to-day -day life, the stresses and the strains, but also the uncertainty that is in the whole world. Climate change, political uncertainty, conflicts, pandemics now. How we respond to that in our mind, in our thought, and how we discuss with other people. If we truly believe that God is our rock and our foundation, of course we engage in discussion and, and, and we don't just brush it off under the carpet. But we proclaim that we have a God who is higher and mightier, who we depend on. So regardless of what's going on in our day to day and, or across the world, our God is higher on whom we depend upon. And that would hopefully, and I pray for myself as well, that that then brings great questions from people in my workplace and people who I'm friends with that aren't Christians who can, who can ask, how can you be so content? I know what's going on. You've got three kids and stresses at work. How can you just be so peaceful and content most of the time? We can have a discussion about, um, about climate change or Donald Trump and, and you know, my response can be so, hopefully I pray, of, of, of just peace and understanding that it generates those questions that then open up a great chance and opportunity to talk about our foundation and our rock, which is the God that we serve. So friends, just for, as is for me, I pray that it, we live that truth. We don't just hold it in our hearts and our minds, but we live that truth that God is our rock and God is our foundation. Hezekiah then, after 
the Assyrian messengers asked those questions. He, he then did something else. So this is Hezekiah's second response. So the messengers had come, had been asking, who are you basing your confidence on? Whom do you depend on? And it was actually getting the, uh, the officials reporting to Hezekiah, getting them quite worried because they weren't just saying this to a few people. They were proclaiming this at the walls of Jerusalem for all to hear. You know, there would have been hundreds, if not thousands of people being able to hear these words perhaps. And the, the officials in the, in the city of Jerusalem actually asked the Assyrians, do you mind if you spoke in uh, Arabic? Because because they were speaking in Hebrew, so the the Israelites could understand, but they could they could hit, they could see the Israelites starting to ponder and mull over this these these words of perhaps you know come you know come over to us find wine and food good times are to be had that they actually asked you know, could you stop speaking and just speak to Arabic we can understand Arabic but if you could stop speaking in Hebrew that would be great you know just just for a moment. So this all got reported back to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's second response was to go to the temple of the Lord and ask for the prophet Isaiah. His second response was to go to Isaiah for wisdom and assurance. We then read that the messengers of Sennacherib came back another time. And we can read... In chapter 19, verses 9 to 13, they come back with some other very good questions. Say to Hezekiah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Reseph, and the people of Eden who were in Telazar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Setparvaim, or of Hena, or of Er? Will you be delivered? Will your God deliver you? You can hear those words thundering around Jerusalem. And again, the people and Hezekiah, they can look back at their own history and see time and time again through Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Joseph, the judges and David and so on and on of God coming through for his people and delivering and bringing salvation. But I'm sure there was some doubt. I'm sure there was some internal discussion of will God deliver us? Will we come through for us one more time? Because he had come through for us for over a decade in our fight against Assyria. But maybe now, maybe is God teaching us a lesson? Has God forgotten about us? And we can ask that ourselves. I know I have in the past. Will God respond? Will, Will God 
save me from this? Will God come through for me in this situation? Is it too big a prayer for me to pray for others to pray? Well, God, does, does God work in that way anymore? Does God heal and act and intervene in that way anymore? Does he do it in this place, in this church, in this community? Last week, Ard gave a very uh, good story of when he went skiing and how there was one particular slope where a number of people were congregating at the top and quite hesitant to go down. And it was only until the first brave souls, the first couple went down that then people started in larger numbers to follow. And I was reminded of Roger Bannister, who, if you don't know, he ran the first four-minute mile in 1954. And this, this kind of goal of running a mile under four minutes... It had been a record that people had been going for since apparently 1886. So nearly 70 years since it became a, a thing to kind of go for, it took 70 years for then Roger Bannister to, to do it. But then what happened? 45 days after Roger, Roger, Roger Bannister did a sub four-minute mile, 45 days an Australian guy did it as well. And now hundreds and hundreds of people have ran a sub four-minute mile. And there's many reasons to contribute to this, but the biggest one that I can think of is that Roger Bannister showed and demonstrated that it was possible, that it could be done. And friends, we have, as Christians... A whole book, a Bible that demonstrates what is possible. What God desires to do and can do. And not just, not just a book, but we have a congregation here of testimonies. If you look back over your life of what is possible, what God has done and continues to do. We have a whole church history of those testimonies, of what is possible. So we get to the point of the story where Hezekiah responds for the third time. The first response, he bargained. The second response, he went to somebody else, really, for wisdom and for assurance. Now we get to the point where we read in chapter 19, verse 14 to 19, Hezekiah then went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. Finally, we've got it there written. He prayed to the Lord. For me, it's, that's encouraging because I'm exactly the same and I, I hope... I, I, you know, I'm sure some of you are as well. Where it took Hezekiah three, it probably would have taken me ten times, maybe, before I spread it out before the Lord and prayed. And we can, we can, I think, associate and, 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 and acknowledge that. That we can try, I think, everything under the sun. 
And then I always think in my head, what, what an idiot. It's taken me like a week of just worry or talking to other people about it before I've actually brought it before the Lord and prayed about it. Hezekiah's prayer is also very interesting. So this is how Hezekiah prayed for the salvation of Judah and Jerusalem. O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Two things Hezekiah did there that I'd wanted to pull out. One at the very start and one at the end. He begins his prayer by telling God not only how big God is, how mighty God is, but proclaiming and affirming God's rightful place over his uh, place over all of the kingdoms of the earth and when we pray we, we see this replicated many times in the bible of people beginning prayers by proclaiming how big their god is it's not to stroke god's ego like he needs some cheerleading but it's so that we are reminded of how big our god is and we are reminded of his rightful place. Because as we do so, as we enlarge our view and our perspective of who God is, the problem, the situation that we are coming to God with, finds its rightful place. And that is below the authority and the majesty of our Father God. And as we affirm and uphold the largeness of God and the might and the majesty and the power of God, it gives us encouragement to pray bold, scary prayers that we may in our, in, in our own strength, in our own mentality, in our own attitude, wouldn't be able to do. But as we affirm the largeness and the majesty of God and his power, it can excite, motivate, incite in us to pray that one bit further, that one point a notch larger in expectancy of what God wants to do. Hezekiah also ends his prayer interestingly. He ends it by saying, Deliver us from his hand. O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord our God. It's an interesting sentence. He could have said, 
deliver us from his hand so that your holy city will be saved. Deliver us from his hand so that your holy city will be able to prosper, will be free. Deliver us so that your holy city will then be able to continue worshipping you, O Lord. But Hezekiah says, deliver us, save us, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are God. The purpose of this the purpose of this act of salvation and, 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 and deliverance from the Assyrians isn't just about the city itself, isn't just about Hezekiah and his people. It's about God being known across the earth <clears throat> and that God acts in such a way that others may know of him and that he alone is God. How would that mindset affect how we pray? Lord, provide this year for me and my family so that those people around me will know that you are the mighty provider. Lord, oh God, heal me supernaturally so that the people that I meet will know that you are a God of miracles. Lord, restore that relationship that with that person so that he or she and others around us will know that you alone restore and bring restoration. God desires to work through us so that we, as it says in John, will have life abundantly, but also so that those that we interact with and meet us and that surround us will know that there is only one God and that there is a God worth serving and worth following and worth praying to. And God responded, as I said at the start, God responded on the extreme of the supernatural. Hezekiah praying that prayer, proclaiming how big God is, declaring that deliverance comes so that all may know that that God of Israel was the one and only. The way that God responded to Hezekiah speaks volumes. Because Hezekiah is basically praying for victory in battle. And as God had done many times before for the nation of Israel, God answers those prayers. But he could have done so intervening supernaturally, but he could have done in very natural way. He could have given wisdom and discernment in their battle plans and tactics. He could have given supernatural strength in the arms of the soldiers so they could swing their arms for 24 hours he could have given supernatural levels of endurance and fortitude and determination for the for the israelite army to win the battle all fantastic answers to prayer all supernatural intervention and would have been declared and proclaimed and praised and thanked by the, uh, uh, by the people of Jerusalem and by Hezekiah. But when word maybe got to 
other parts of the world, other kingdoms of the earth, that the Israelites had defeated the Assyrians uh, in battle, it could have been put down by others quite easily to oh, a better battle strategy. They just wanted it more. They were better trained. They were just up for it on that day. But God decided in his infinite wisdom to respond by sending an angel, presumably holding quite a big weapon, to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. There's no doubt there. There's no other explanation about a movement of the Lord and who the God of Israel is and, you know, in terms of being the one and only God to follow. In his infinite wisdom, he decided to respond by sending an angel to do the work of 200,000 men. Responded in such a supernatural way. And for us, as you know, we've been talking about and being quite open about this being a journey for us as a church. Praying for the supernatural and what that may look like. And probably just a good disclaimer, I'm obviously not saying pray for an angel to come and smite any enemies of yours. But what does that look like for each and every one of us? Because... When we go back to Roger Bannister and the four-minute mile, if you start running, you're not expected to run a four-minute mile a day after. And even, let's, not even, let's talk about five-minute mile. Let's, go, let's just go out to a five-minute mile. Experts say that if you want to run a five-minute mile or get anywhere close to it, you need to dedicate at least two years of running and cardio exercise to get under, uh, to get under five minutes consistently. And prayer is a discipline. Prayer is a discipline to build. Of course, of course God can work regardless. Someone becomes a Christian one day, the day after they can pray for supernatural healing and God, God will work. Of course he won't just say, oh, you're going to be, you, know, you need to give two years of hard graft before I work through you. But when we think about our participation in this, what we can do, to participate in what God wants to do. The, the, the act of praying is a discipline, it is a habit. And it starts with it becoming our first instinct, with what is going on in our lives. That unlike Hezekiah, where it took three responses, even for myself can take up to ten or more, that prayer becomes our first response in our daily lives. We hunger after it as much as we do food and water. Prayer. Persistent and fervent prayer. And dialogue with our Father God. And in that prayer. We're growing and we're, we're pushing the limit. Just as we would. As we know. I can, you know, if I commit two years, this, I can maybe run a five-minute mile. It, it emboldens us to train that little bit harder, to maybe change other areas of our life, to be creative or, or to try a different approach. 
that as we pray consistently and fervently, our belief may be heightened every step of the way. And it is a journey. It's, it, it might be two steps forward, one step back of, of failure and disappointment. But as a church, we are moving in the right direction of, of, of an expectancy being grown of what God can do and what God wants to do in our individual lives, in this church and in this community. It can only happen through prayer. And we have a fantastic part to play in this. And it can be scary, uncomfortable, and daunting, and, 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 and putting yourself out there for failure. But it can be exciting. And it can be an adventure, and it, can, and, and it changes prayer, changes lives, changes communities, and changes families. Only through prayer. And at the very least, if we're making it more and more of a habit and of a discipline, it's just the law of averages. The more prayers we send up, there's more chances for answered prayer. It's just simply the law of averages, at, at, at the very least. So just as Hezekiah showed in his prayer, praying and declaring how big God is, and knowing that it's not just about what God can do for us, but through us in showing and demonstrating to others. I just invite us to, to walk in that now for a few moments. So I invite the band up just to, uh, just to play. But we want to be a people and desire to be a people who on this journey are not stagnating. And yes, we might take a step back, but we're taking two steps forward. And we know, we know straight away, there's going to be disappointment and there's going to be failure and there's going to be questions. Is this right? Is, is God really sort of saying this? Where is God in this? We know God's not a magic eight ball that we can just, you know, uh, we, we, we can just roll and get a good answer to. We also know what is possible. We also know that God desires the best for us. And we also know the power of prayer. And as we heighten our expectation, I firmly believe God will not only meet it, but exceed it.